You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Now let's take our Bibles and turn to John chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, John chapter 3. While you're turning there, I want to, uh, to just offer some pastoral um, perspective, uh, maybe for a moment. One of the challenges of pastoring uh, in our current cultural context is the temptation uh, and sometimes this uh, felt need to speak to anything and everything that is a part of the news cycle. Um, and it's been exhausting, quite frankly, over the last two or three years because there have been so many things, so much stuff over the last two or three years from global pandemics to masks to vaccines to the list goes on and on. I don't have anything uh, to offer you today about uh, spy balloons or UFOs or invasions of the body snatchers or anything like that. Uh, I, am, I may have an opinion about some of those things, but certainly am not an expert. I do uh, want to just uh, share some thoughts briefly uh, about what is now being described as the Asbury Revival. Um, First of all, uh, it is not for me, or for anyone else for that matter, to declare something at revival. Okay? Um, that's not the point of what I want to share with you today at all. Um, and I know that if you're like me, maybe you've watched uh, with a little bit of bewilderment maybe at the number of grifters and um, charlatans who will... Uh, take advantage of something like this to build their own platform or whatever the case may be. Uh, I, I know some of you, like me, you maybe grew up in a church, church culture where it was fairly common to maybe schedule a revival every year. Uh, it would be put on the calendar and a guest speaker would be invited in to preach a revival. And I've, I've preached some of those kinds of meetings, been invited to do that uh, at various times through the course of my ministry. I will just tell you that revival is not something that we can schedule. Okay, it's just not. Uh, you can't schedule a revival. You study the history of revivals, the Great Awakenings, all those things, and it was not a group of people who got together and said, hey, let's have a revival on this date, from this date to this date, and, and that kind of thing. That, that's not what revival is. Revival is not an event, really. Revival is not um, uh, emotionalism. It's not that. Uh, we, we know as we study the history of revivals, even in Scripture and, and uh, in, in more modern history, more recent history, uh, we do see some things that are very commonly characteristic of revival. Uh, that is um, an awareness, a renewed awareness and sensitivity to the things of God, the power of God, the presence of God, a conviction of sin. Uh, and that is uh, then characterized by uh, uh, confession and repentance and those kinds of things. It's not about uh, a special band or uh, a special messenger necessarily, anything like that. God is not limited uh, to any of those things that we many times associate with revival. Uh, and so I'm encouraged, highly encouraged by some of the things that I am seeing uh, from uh, Kentucky and what God is doing there. Uh, I do find it intriguing that there are people who will pray for revival, and then when it doesn't look quite like they think it should look, they find themselves in a place of criticism. Um, and so I, I, the, the best example I can give you may be kind of a crude one, but this last week um, I ripped my thumbnail, like 
literally down the whole side of my thumb bed there and uh, my, the nail bed there, and it hurt like crazy. Still hurts. Uh, it's been hurting all week. Okay, but the reason that hurts is because the nerve endings were awakened, you might say, when when this injury occurred. And so there's been an incredible sensitivity. I, I, I mean couldn't even put my, my hand in my pocket for two or three days because just to touch it just, just hurt badly. And I think that, that's a little bit of what we find in true revival. There is this awakened sense of an awareness of the power and the presence of God and a conviction of sin. And so I couldn't just ignore it. No, I, I've been pouring hydrogen peroxide on my thumb and trying to scrub it out as best I can. And I put alcohol on it and I put neosporin on it and I've wrapped it to protect it and all those things. I had to give it some attention. And I think when true revival happens, uh, you see something similar happening within, within hearts. I talked to someone this last week. I went out to East Texas to do a uh, funeral for a family there and I was having a conversation with someone and uh, they said that there's a uh, social media influencer, uh, red flag right away, um, but that, that, that they follow that went out to, um, to Kentucky uh, to witness what was happening there. Uh, and this person's criticism was this. In the few hours that they were there, they didn't hear anyone share the gospel. Okay, well, here's the thing you've got to remember about revival. Revival is for God's people. Okay, revival is for the saved. You can't be revived unless you've been vived, right? Okay? Now, often, often uh, the salvation of the lost uh, and people coming to faith in Christ is a byproduct of revival, uh, but revival is for the believer. Uh, and I know for me, personally, uh, there have been a, a handful of times that I believe that I personally have experienced revival in my heart. Seldom has it come in a big event type thing or, or anything like that. God is not limited uh, to those kinds of things. And so I'll just tell you my position right now is I am hopeful. I am prayerful. I've been praying alongside those students uh, and those who have uh, genuinely experienced uh, a revival there. Uh, I'm hopeful as I see some of those types of things uh, being spread across the country to various places. Uh, and I'm praying for revival, have been. And so uh, I'm genuinely excited. So that's really all I've got to say about that. I hope that you will join me in praying. Uh, and each time that we gather, I hope that your prayer uh, is that God would speak to your heart in a way that would bring about a revival for you uh, and that you would have a renewed sense, an awareness of the power and the presence of God uh, and, and all of that. And, and I'll also say this. If you study the history of revivals, and I'm, I'm thankful I had to take a course in seminary on the history of revivals, one of the things that you'll discover is that often God has used young people, particularly on college university campuses, uh, to bring about revival. Uh, and so it's an amazing thing uh, to witness. Even uh, in the Second Great Awakening, I think uh, Yale uh, was kind of a, uh, an epicenter, you might say, of some of the things that God was doing at that point in history. So uh, I'm excited for that. Well, we're in John chapter 3 this morning in a sermon series called Person of Interest. This is a study of the Gospel of John. I think we're now in like week 12, I believe. Uh, and today we're in the final six verses of chapter 3. I remind you that much of the third chapter of John's Gospel records a teaching, a conversation between Jesus and a Jewish religious leader by the name of Nicodemus. Uh, Jesus explains to Nicodemus that salvation comes not through uh, a human decision or fresh resolve, we might say, but by being born again. 
And this requirement Jesus uh, issues, he says that you must be born again. In verse number 7 here of chapter 3, it cannot be performed uh, by men or women themselves any more than can their physical birth. Uh, The Spirit of God must accomplish this. God himself must grant and perform the miracle of the new birth. It's not a mental assent to a new doctrine or a simple resolution to live differently, to be a better person. Salvation comes through the miracle of new birth, whereby our hearts are set free to put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Last week, we looked at chapter 3, verses 22 through 30, Uh, where John the Baptist uh, has an opportunity to uh, teach some of his followers some very important lessons about ministry uh, and about humility. And he explained his unique perspective as the one called to be the forerunner of Jesus. He said there in verse number 30, He must increase, I must decrease. And our text today is kind of an expansion of that. And so let's look at it together once again, verses 31 through 36 of John chapter 3. It says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to to this, that God is true. For he whom God has uh, sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. I wonder today, what, what do you believe that it takes to be truly great? You know, it wasn't too, too long ago that to call someone a goat would have been considered an insult, right? You're a goat. But now, uh, that term uh, is is, is a compliment uh, of the highest order. To call someone a goat is to say they are the greatest of all time. Uh, There are some people who still erroneously think that LeBron James is the goat, the greatest of all time, greatest basketball player of all time. Uh, It's okay, you can be wrong about that, LeBron fans. No, if I were to ask you, though, of the greatest, to think of the greatest people in the world, who who do you think of and why? Is it some significant accomplishment like being elected president or winning a Super Bowl? Is it having lots of money or fame or status? Is it being an outspoken moral voice to the world? If you look at Time Magazine's list of the 100 most influential people in the world, it's, it's divided into categories. They have pioneers and titans and artists and leaders and icons. And the list is usually quite diverse. I compiled just a, a rather short list to show the diversity of it. There's Patrick Mahomes, uh, Steph Curry, Pope Francis, Tim Cook, Adele, Ted Cruz, Paul Ryan, Vladimir Putin, Usain Bolt, Jordan Spieth, Dwayne Johnston. Uh, Katie Ledecky, and Donald Trump, just to name a few. So year to year, the list reflects the reality that our culture and our world seem to be centered around celebrities, politicians, athletes, business moguls, 
The power people in our world, in other words, they, they run countries, they run corporations, or they simply run faster than anyone else, or they throw more touchdown passes, uh, or sell more music, or star in more movies than anyone else. But as we look at our text today, I want to submit to you that the greatest man who ever lived, truly the goat, if we were to use that term, was none of those things. He was not a great athlete, was not an entertainer, he was not a politician. In fact, he uh, repeatedly walked away from offers of political power. He didn't break any world records or entertain people, but he did draw large crowds. And sadly, it seems that he drew as large a crowd that wanted him dead as the crowd that wanted to make him king. When he left this world, Jesus had approximately 120 followers who were willing to be identified as such, and most of them were in hiding, afraid to publicly identify with him. Within months, thousands had come to follow him, though. Today, his followers number somewhere around 2.2 billion people. Approximately one-third of the world's population claimed to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Besides the numerical growth in followers, this man has had the most profound impact on culture and charity in the world, inspiring the establishment of the world's first hospitals, the first orphanages, the first universities, the first and most influential global charities. His teachings also inspired development of the concept of universal human rights, the establishment of even guidelines uh, for declaring and fighting wars in a more just, moral, and humane manner, the abolition of slavery, among other things. So why has this man had such enduring influence in the world across centuries and cultures among rich and poor and educated and uneducated in literally every corner of the world? Well, here at the end of John chapter 3, we have a summary statement of the greatness of Jesus, the Son of God, the one who comes from heaven and who is described here as being above all. You know, there's a big difference between prominence and preeminence. I find that a lot of people today, even people who claim to be Christians, want Jesus to have a place of prominence in their life, but they don't necessarily want him to be preeminent in their lives. So today we're looking at the preeminence of Jesus Christ. I want us to first consider the origin and the position of the Son. According to verse number 31, the, the first thing that John says here about Jesus is focused really on those two things, his origin and his position. It says, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. So Jesus is the greatest individual, the greatest man who ever lived for one key reason. He came from heaven, and so he is above all. This contrasts Jesus with every earthly human being who has ever lived, as great as they may be in the world's eyes. As great as their contribution to humankind may have been, he is above all. 
John the Baptist himself, as great as he was, as a prophet and a forerunner, was a man from the earth belonging to the earth who spoke in an earthly way. In other words, uh, John the Baptist could call people to repent of their sin and seek forgiveness, but he could not extend that forgiveness to them himself. He couldn't promise himself to give people salvation or to give them the Holy Spirit. You see, real cleansing and power from on high had to come from the one who comes from above, from heaven. These words would be fitting to be spoken by John the Baptist as a reflection of his humility. After all, in verse 30, he said, He must increase, I must decrease. And he's kind of continuing that thought in this teaching. These words would be, would be uh, certainly uh, would, would clarify further exactly what he meant by that. They're an explanation as to why God had ordained that John the Baptist must decrease and Jesus must increase. His message was a necessary, vitally important one. It was the message that God had given him. But because he was a mere human being, he was limited in what he could do. Jesus is the eternal Son of God whose origin is from heaven and not from the earth. So his words are the most important for us to hear because of his unique origin and his unique position. Why don't you consider, as we look at verses 32 through 34, the witness of the Son. Notice what it says there. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that that, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. So Jesus speaks of what he has seen and heard. Who better understands heaven and heavenly things than Jesus who came from heaven? Who better to disclose to us the heart of God than God himself in the flesh, the Son of God, sent from the Father's heart? As I mentioned earlier, we have a lot of people today who are happy to give you their opinion on anything and everything. And if you were to ask me, I'm sure that I could tell you what I think of life in Alaska, for example. Um, one of the things that I would love to do is take an Alaskan cruise. Would love to, uh, to go to uh, Alaska. But you might want to ask me if I've ever lived in Alaska or ever been to Alaska, for that matter, before you take my opinion too seriously. Because I've never lived there and I've never even been there. So I can give you my opinion You should probably take it with a grain of salt, as we say. Well, none of us have ever been to heaven. None of us have ever seen God. None of us truly knows the heart of God unless it's been revealed to us. That's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 27, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Sadly... Even though Jesus is both knowledgeable and faithful as a witness of heavenly things, John says here, no one truly, no one receives his testimony. This reminds us of something that we've already seen here in John's gospel, chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, where it says, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. 
And earlier in John chapter 3, we learned why it is that no one receives his testimony. Why his own people did not receive him. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Then against the background of that universal rejection of Jesus by the world, we have the good news that some do receive him. In fact, receive Jesus' testimony. In John chapter 1, right after the bad news of verses 9 through 11, we have verses 12 and 13 that tell us, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of, the, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And then right after the bad news of John 3, 20, 19 and 20, the good news of verse 21 comes. It says, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And following that same pattern here, verses 33 and 34 follow the rejection that's stated in verse 32 by saying, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this. That's like the, the seal of ancient times of, of a waxy substance with a, an imprint that would indicate authenticity. Sets his seal to this, that God is true, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God. And so you notice the pattern that highlights the true source of the contrast in those, in those passages. The implication of the contrast is clear. If we are left to our own and we are not born of God, we then do what the rest of the world does. We reject Jesus, his message. If our works are done in our flesh and not done in God. If they are not God's works, then we remain in the darkness. If we do not recognize that God is true and that Jesus is speaking the words of God as the one sent from God, then we reject the testimony of Jesus like the rest of the world. So what John tells us three different times is something that we see very clearly all the time. Many people have heard about Jesus. They are your co-workers and your neighbors and your family members and sometimes those with whom you attend church. have heard about Jesus. may have even read the Gospels. They may know what the Bible says about Jesus as the Son of God, but in the end... They don't get it. They have never at any point turned from their sin to faith in Jesus Christ. They aren't born of God. They remain in spiritual darkness. They reject the testimony of Jesus about God the Father and about himself. It's a sad reality, but we see it all the time. Then I want you to notice the last part of verse 34. We see this relationship within the Trinity, the Godhead of the Spirit and the Son. And from this statement of contrast between those who reject the testimony of Jesus, those who accept his ministry, John then goes on to highlight the unique greatness of Jesus in terms of the Holy Spirit. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Now, commentators... Uh, differ on exactly the meaning of this verse and would even suggest that it's not entirely clear. It could mean uh, either that Jesus speaks the words of God because God gives Jesus the anointing of the Holy Spirit without measure. It could mean that Jesus gives the Spirit without measure. And 
I think in the context, since John is focused on the unique superiority, the preeminence of Jesus, I think the meaning is probably that God the Father has given Jesus the Spirit without measure. This contrasts Jesus with everyone else who has ever been called, anointed by God to proclaim his word. John the Baptist himself saw Jesus anointed with the Holy Spirit at his baptism. When Peter was proclaiming Jesus to the Roman centurion Cornelius and his household, he said, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. We find that in Acts chapter 10. Remember, Jesus is the Messiah. It means he is the anointed one. Meaning he was anointed by God the Father to be Lord and Savior and prophet and priest and king. And everyone who has been called by God to be a prophet and speak the truth of God to the people of God has been anointed for that calling. All of God's high priests who served over the tabernacle or the temple in the worship of God between God and his people have been anointed for that calling. Every faithful king called by God to lead and rule and defend and protect God's people has been anointed for that calling. However... Each of the mere men, human beings who held individual offices, had the anointing of the Holy Spirit by measure to a limited degree. None of them given the Holy Spirit without measure. Jesus alone, called by God, anointed by the Holy Spirit to fulfill all three offices, to be the great prophet speaking God's truth to God's people, to be our great high priest as the one true mediator between God and human uh, beings, to be the eternal king of kings and lord of lords to protect and defend and govern God's kingdom and his people. And Jesus alone received the anointing, the Holy Spirit, in absolute fullness without measure. It demonstrates for us the unity of the Trinity. So what John is emphasizing here about Jesus is that the unlimited, unmeasured anointing of the Holy Spirit meant that Jesus spoke the very words of God all the time. Everything he spoke was directly from God. Prophets had prophetic oracles, but they also spoke a lot of their own words that weren't from God when they weren't speaking those prophetic oracles. Jesus is categorically different. He alone, so filled with the Holy Spirit that when he opened his mouth, his words were always the very word of God. That's why he's called the Logos. The Word, the Word made flesh. You might think, well, of course his words were the very words of God. After all, he is God, right? Absolutely. But these particular verses are focused on Jesus as God, but uh, not focused on Jesus as God, his divinity, but on his humanity. His focus is on what makes Jesus of Nazareth the greatest man who ever lived and the man who should have the greatest influence in our world and in our lives. That's Jesus. The greatest of all time who is above all. Then I want you to notice verse 35. The Father 
and the Son. From the fullness of the anointing of the Spirit, John now shifts his attention to the, to the fullness of the love of the Father for the Son. The Father loves the Son so much that he has given all things into his hand. Again, this is a reference to the man Christ Jesus, the Messiah, King of kings and Lord of lords, given all things. He is the new Adam, given dominion over the whole world. He is the heir of all things. So understand this, the preeminence, this preeminence of Christ over all things is what Paul was communicating when he said he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation in Colossians chapter 1. This is what Paul was emphasizing in, in Ephesians chapter 1 when he said that God seated him at the right hand in the heavenly, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above, there's that language again, all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So Jesus has come from heaven. And that origin and that nature makes him above all. But he has also been given all things by the Father. And so this dominion, this enthronement makes Jesus superior above all things. And I want you to realize this morning that we are included in the all things. You do realize that when you're told that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, that means he reigns over us, right? And you do realize that when Paul tells us that Jesus is seated far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, that includes you and me. That Jesus is above you. And the reason why that makes us uncomfortable, I think, on many levels is because we want to be in control of our own lives and our own destinies. We want to run and rule our lives. But I want you to think about this for a moment. Who would you rather have ruling over the affairs of the world? The competing self-interests of billions of deeply flawed and profoundly selfish human beings or Jesus, the Son of God? holy and loving, who has come from heaven to reveal God to us and to reconcile us to holy God. Who do you think would do a better job of managing and directing and saving your life, you or Jesus? Now, on a personal level, I know what a mess I am, <laughs> how contradictory and confused and how selfish and petty and how easily deceived and tragically misled I can be. I trust Jesus. I trust Jesus to take my life and make more of it than I ever could. And then finally, I want us to look at verse 36. Eternal life in the Son. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That's not popular language today, is it? To think of the wrath of God. So the big question today is really this, which whoever describes you right now? Are you one of those who believes in the Son of God and has eternal life? Or are you one of those who does not obey the Son, that is, who does not accept the testimony of Jesus Christ, and who shall not see life because the wrath of God remains on them? 
Notice the language of those who reject the Son of God. Is that the wrath of God remains on them. We're all naturally under the wrath of God because we're all guilty of violating God's law repeatedly, rebelling against His wise, just, and loving rule. And like those who commit acts of treason against the United States, there is sure judgment from God against all cosmic insurrectionists who want to overthrow God from ruling their lives. So the wrath of God remains on those who reject the Son. But eternal life is given to those who believe in the Son. The Son has eternal life in Himself and gives life to all who believe in Him. Though we deserve wrath like everyone, Jesus took the wrath of God on Himself so that the same loving regard which the Father has for the Son may abide on us. It's why we're called joint heirs with Christ. Let me ask you a question once again. What is the measure of your life's greatness? We open the message by considering the question, what makes someone great? So as we close, I want us to once again revisit that question. What would make your life great? It's something that I contemplate every time over the years that I've been called upon to, to preach a funeral for someone, a memorial service. I did one this past week in East Texas. And I've often sat down with families and asked them simple questions like, how do you think your loved one will most be remembered? What is one word that you would use to describe your loved one and their life, their influence? Would your life count as great only if you achieve something that wins the attention of the world? Would your life count as great only if you could make Time's list of the 100 most influential people? What is the true value of any of the world's measures of greatness? Think about it. How long does money last? It doesn't last for eternity, I can tell you that. Fame? Influence? Achievement? Well, I'm profoundly grateful for a long list of people who have made a profound impact on the world in which we live. I'm a huge fan of a guy named Banting. And the reason is because he, he discovered insulin. I'm, I'm thankful for that. And I'm thankful that God has used uh, that, that, that people in those kinds of ways to, uh, to make uh, life on this earth better for us in many respects. But in the end, what makes life truly great? Is it because you're well-known? Is it because you end up in your name in history books? In the end, what makes life truly great is reconciliation to God, which brings eternal life. I could tell you the name this morning of the individual whose funeral I preached this last week. And there's only a small handful of people in the room who would know that name because you know that person individually. She was a part of our church family in East Texas for 11 years. She was a logger's wife. Lived a very simple life. Never had much by the world's standards. Didn't accomplish anything of great significance by the world's standards. Didn't have much education. 
would not be known for some discovery or some great accomplishment even. Yet her life could be great because she'd placed her faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And in her own quiet, simple way, did what she could to pass that faith down to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. She was a great-grandmother. Not famous in the world's eyes. Would not be considered great by the world's standards. But knew what a truly great life can be in Jesus Christ. Think about the significance of life. Think about what it means to, 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 to know God in a personal and intimate way through faith in Jesus Christ. And I suspect that someday when it's all said and done, I don't have it all figured out exactly how rewards and all those things are going to be handled in eternity. But I have a pretty good suspicion that if there's some kind of a earthly, heavenly connection when that time comes, i got a pretty good suspicion that many of us will be shocked by who receives rewards in eternity. i got a suspicion we'll look at some and go, yeah, but he just pastored a little tiny church out there in the country. I don't think they ever had more than 40 or 50 people. She just lived a simple, quiet life. Not well known, but she lived a life of influence for the kingdom of God, and for the sake of God's glory. What does it take for a person to be truly great in God's eyes? In the end, what makes life truly great is being reconciled to God. To know that our sins are forgiven, that we are deeply and truly loved by God, that we belong to the eternal and glorious kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we will live forever with God in the perfect and glorious kingdom of Christ. In every way imaginable, the depth of joy and satisfaction in length of lasting significance, in freedom and delight and sheer pleasure, this is the greatest life possible. And I think of what the psalmist David wrote in Psalm 16, how he concluded that psalm. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. If we could for just a moment bow our heads and close our eyes. If you're here today and you want to be truly great. To live a great life. It will not be because you have become famous in this world or because you've reached a particular level of success or achievement in this world's eyes. It will be because you personally know the greatest 
of all time. The one who is above all. You know him as your Savior and your Lord. Your life is found in him. Your eternity is found in him. He is preeminent in your life. Doesn't just have a place in your life. Isn't just prominent in your life, but is preeminent in your life. If you're here today and you've never committed your life to Christ, maybe you're on a pathway that says, I'm trying my best to be as good a person as I can. The simple biblical truth is, even on your best day, you can't be good enough. It's only as you turn from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ, the greatest of all time, that you will know true, lasting, eternal joy and greatness. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your word today. Thank you for our time together here. Lord, together we collectively want to acknowledge you as preeminent above all. And help us, Lord, to know and understand if we are to truly be great, it will only be as we are found in Christ. Life in Christ is true greatness. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.